The following is a message by Dr. Brian D. Estelle from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. When I heard we were going to be looking at the Exodus in chapel, um, I immediately jumped on the Song of the Sea, uh, Exodus 15, some of the oldest uh, poetry in the Hebrew Bible. If you will turn there uh, with me, we'll read verses 1 through 21. I'll be reading from the ESV. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war, the Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its full of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away, terror and dread fall upon them all because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in. You will plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. And then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Thus the reading of God's word. In the Belgic Confession, article number 34, which is on holy baptism, after describing the institution of baptism at the end of that article, it makes this comment, not that this is effected by the external water, but by the sprinkling of the precious blood of the Son of God, 
Who is our Red Sea through which we must pass to escape the tyranny of Pharaoh, that is the devil, and to enter into the spiritual land of Canaan? So this chapel message, which is focusing on the Song of the Sea, you don't have to think too hard in order to take note of where the Belgic Confession was alluding to, namely Exodus chapter 15 and the Song of the Sea, uh, by that reference at the end. It is a chapel message, not a sermon. Um, so please don't use this as a model, God forbid, as a sermon when you go out uh, into uh, the pulpit in the future. But I do want to make some comments on the Song of the Sea. First of all, biblical scholars of the highest caliber have long recognized the importance of this poem. Frank Moore Cross, for example, and the late David Noel Freeman considered the Song of the Sea to be a sort of national anthem of Israel celebrating that crucial and central event in her history, close quote. Others have said to study the Exodus event is to actually study the very core of Israelite religion. In other words, it is the core of salvation for the ancient Hebrews. And if this is the case, then there is something that the Song of the Sea can tell us about the salvation of God that he provides, and it can even speak to our modern controversies, for example, in the area of justification by faith and our constant and timely need for a word of assurance in our most pressing and poignant questions which we humans and pilgrims asked. Let me explain. First of all, consider a modern approach to the Song of the Sea. I'll break it up into a couple categories. It's not surprising that many scholars in the modern period look at the Song of the Sea in the book of Exodus from the viewpoint of different sources or traditions. Take, for example, Martin Note, whose influence cannot be underestimated. He considered the exodus from Egypt for the Hebrews to be a primary confession of faith or article of faith. In his history of Pentateuchal traditions, he argued that the exodus theme was the very kernel of the book of Exodus. And Note concluded that the exodus was actually a center not only of the book of Exodus, but a point of crystallization for the entire Pentateuch. After tracing a development of five themes, he posited that the oldest theme, the Exodus tradition, was only later joined to the theme of the land, which in turn needed a kind of bridging theme in order for the story to cohere. And thus the theme of the wilderness wanderings became a part of the final formative stages which would make up, in his view, the Pentateuch in its received form. Now for note, Therefore, the wilderness theme was marginalized in the makeup and composition of the final form of the Pentateuch. Others today that are producing scholarship on the, the Exodus at the highest level have argued that the wilderness theme as a part of the Exodus complex plays a more central role. Here I have in mind Thomas Dozman, for example. He's argued that the wilderness pilgrimage theme was not an original component of the plot structure of the Exodus event, but was actually inserted by later Deuteronomistic tradents, that is, editors, and that its particular contribution was to separate the element of divine power, as described in the Exodus despoiling event, and the intended outcome, 
namely the inheritance of the Israelites. This is an even more egregious mistake in my estimation for reasons I'll explain in a minute. But notice in Dozman's view, the wilderness tradition transforms the story into salvation history. A third approach can best be summarized in Walter Brueggemann's terms, that most popular of postmodern Hebrew Bible interpreters, in the following way. For the Israelites, since they descended from nomadic stock, namely Abraham, being turfed in the land is absolutely essential to the core of their being. The Jordan represented a kind of boundary for confidence at, of at-homeness, the moment of empowerment or enlandment, the decisive event of being turfed and at home for the first time. After all, Abraham left his home. None of these three approaches, which are fairly representative of the academy uh, in general, gets it right. My approach is to assume the unity of the book and the canon. My approach will be to argue that the land reference, that holy abode which we just read about in the Song of the Sea, is probably Sinai, at least immediately, and that this land reference is important for our understanding of salvation as a whole. Breaking up the story into alleged stages of redaction or some kind of postmodern importance of being turfed approach like Brueggemann does, does not plumb the depths of what the Holy Spirit intended in this passage. Listen again to verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And then verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, your sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Let me explain. Sinai is indeed the best immediate option for references here in verses 13 and 17. However, to take the next move and widen our understanding of these references to the canonical level is absolutely essential. The original language and the imagery of Sinai was used for legitimization of later places of worship in the Hebrew scriptures. Just two examples, among others. Even though Exodus 15 designates Sinai as Yahweh's inheritance, his sanctuary to which he's leading his people, that's far from the end of the story. For example, in Joshua chapter 3 to 5, this reference and an allusion to the Exodus gets broadened to Gilgal. Psalm 78 actually takes this reference to Sinai and broadens it to Shiloh and to Jerusalem, which is ultimately Zion as a past and future ideal. Now this is absolutely essential in order to understand the whole complex of salvation, because then this leads to the following question. If we are going to plumb the depths of what the Exodus salvation means in the rest of scripture, so if you come to chapel the rest of the semester or as you're studying Exodus yourself, what essentially are you doing? What is the meaning? What is the sense? Is it deliverance from Egypt only? Does it include guiding the people to Sinai, which in your mind should mean presence of the Lord? Or does it include something like the wilderness wanderings 
and actually ushering the people into Canaan itself. See, what I'm doing here is, as you read allusions or references to the Exodus event and other parts of Scripture, what would they have thought of and what should you think of as a new covenant Christian with regards to what makes up the most essential salvific event in the Old Testament? These are significant and programmatic questions. The Song of the Sea that we read this morning actually gives us a clue to answer those very questions. Since the Song of the Sea is at the center of the book of Exodus, and since the very structure of the song suggests an answer to those questions about how the Israelites understood the Exodus, let us take our cue from there. Mark Smith recently argued that the Song of the Sea provides several functions in the book of Exodus itself. His thesis is that the Song of uh, the Sea itself functions as a kind of fulcrum between the first half of the book of Exodus and the second half. The narrative about the escape and liberation from the Egyptians, as described in verses 1 through 14, and then described in the song, verses 15 through 121, uh, verse 1 through 121, prepare the reader for Israel's journey through the wilderness, culminating at Mount Sinai, chapter 15, 22 through 18, 27. And of course, this brings one into the Sinai sojourn, which occurs in Exodus 19 through 40. Now listen carefully in the next step. Brian Russell has recently published a monograph that argues that the very structure of the Song of the Sea reflects just such a central organizing principle. Regarding the Song of the Sea in verses 1 through 21 of chapter 15, verses 1 through 12 and 19 through 21 look backwards to the events surrounding the liberation from the blasting furnace oppression of the Egyptians. If you look at your text, you can see that. Verses 13 through 18, however, in the song are very different. Significant, I might add, because they anticipate pilgrimage through the wilderness in the narratives that follow. Therefore, the song of the sea itself seems to indicate an internal structure that serves as a microcosm of the whole book of Exodus, which serves as a macrocosm of the entire Pentateuch which I would suggest serves as a microcosm of the whole complex of salvation, both deliverance from the enemies of Israel in Egypt and the broader wilderness wanderings as described in the Sinai pilgrimage, which culminate, yes, at the foot of the mountain of God, but the wilderness wanderings do not play a minor role in the whole Exodus complex. It's a kind of rite of passage between the Exodus and the promised land. It is this betweenness which was crucial for them. Long have the Jewish people recognized the importance of this uh, transition, memorialized in their ritual of Sukkot, that is the feast or festival of booths. The desert actually, the wilderness wanderings become iconic for them. The place where they entered that dangerous sphere of freedom, where everything is possible. The desert represents the time of separating what was already given, salvation, liberation from the iron furnace of the Egyptians, and what was not yet a reality, the land of Canaan. This will become important for biblical theological analysis of all books subsequent to the Exodus that reflect back on that central 
salvific event. In other words, brothers and sisters, what we're doing when you come to chapel and you listen to the book of Exodus expounded, you're studying salvation. You're studying the whole complex of salvation. And it's not merely to Sinai that God guided the people when he was crafting them as his own. Being in his presence, represented by Sinai, was one goal. But that's not the final goal. Tracing the Exodus motif and its seminal record and its ongoing disclosures throughout scripture indicate that the Exodus had another goal. The goal of the Exodus was to indeed bring the people of God to Sinai, but moreover then to deliver them up to the promised land as well. This goal was the land of Canaan first. However, the eschatological goal was not merely that geopolitical land of Canaan, it was far greater. God has as his goal for the royal priesthood that he is crafting as his own people that they would enter into a much greater end, entitlement to heaven itself. And this was included in the salvation he purchased and won for them in the Exodus. It's also quite clear in Paul, but that's beside the point. Peter says, for example, 2 Peter 3.13, but in keeping with his promises, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. This is the ultimate bliss envisioned by the story. Union with God as a turf people. Enlandment indeed was the ultimate goal, but not merely earthly enlandment. Nothing less than heaven itself was meant by that land promise. Of course, this was the highest goal envisioned at the beginning for Adam and Eve, symbolized in the tree of life. That objective was forfeited, but now it is held out again, and another Adam must merit that final goal and receive the approbation of God so that all those in his train may receive the blessed inheritance. But whether Adam had finished that or whether Christ finishes that which he did, the goal of having won that entitlement to heaven the ultimate eschatological goal is not the declaration of righteous, merely. The goal is enlandment. The goal is heaven. It is union with Christ in a particular sphere with all the people of God. Well done, good and faithful servant. Righteous. Enter now your rest. This is what the exegetical data suggests of the canonical scriptures cooperates with the Exodus motif. It is the whole course of our salvation written in miniature. You see, Canaan becomes a kind of synecdoche for Zion. And of course, ultimately, as we know, and even Jewish writers like John Levinson have told us, Sinai is, in, is important, but it's the only, only the midway point between Egypt and Canaan. Therefore, the particular contribution of this chapel message is to suggest that a close-grained reading of the Exodus itself, which equals the whole salvation story, in the book of Exodus and throughout the scripture, substantiates this very principle. Eschatological rest is the final goal, not Sinai alone. In fact, if you foreshorten this vision, you're teaching or you're preaching, it's not what you'll be taught around here, but if you foreshorten your, your, your teaching or your preaching in the future, you will confuse the Abrahamic and Sinai covenants. The Sinai covenant cannot accomplish what the Abrahamic covenant 
foretold and promised, period. Read Romans 8, 3 and 4. Let me illustrate one very important further point that will emerge from a structural analysis of Exodus 15, the Song of the Sea. It's important to recognize um, here the central thrust of the Song of the Sea is about more than liberation from Egypt. That's only half the story. But it's also uh, liberation from sin, of course, and a significant point is it goes way beyond taking them out from underneath the iron furnace of that political oppression of tyrannical pharaoh. But there's also a question of kingship which supports this whole thing. Look at verse 18. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Now this was a point emphasized by Dr. Fesco last week. Interestingly, in the first 15 chapters of Exodus, this root or related nouns, Malak, Mem, Lamet, Kaf, reign, rule, occurs 14, 15 times. The first 14 times are attributed to Pharaoh. So Dr. Fesco is absolutely right to say a chief question is, who is king? Who really rules the universe? Who really has power to put people under his thumb or to liberate them? And then here in verse 18, the Song of the Sea, for the first time, attributes the root to God. God is king. He alone is Lord. There is no other. It is not Pharaoh, and there is no other God. There is no political leader. There is no leader. There is no human being in all the earth that can measure up to the incomparable God. What is significant and consoling in this gospel that we have in the Song of the Sea is the fact that the one true God is king. He is not only delivering from the iron furnace of sin, taking us into his presence, namely Sinai, so to speak, guiding us through there and our wilderness wanderings. Notice the already, the not yet. But he is also promised in embedded seminal form in the Song of the Sea to do this for you, brothers and sisters, to take you all the way home into his presence, into heaven itself. If you're in union with Christ, you are entitled to heaven because that's what he has merited on your behalf. Indeed, as we fast forward to the transfiguration in the New Testament scriptures, we ask ourselves, what exactly was it that Moses and Elijah were talking to uh, uh, Jesus about our Lord? Well, if you read your Greek Testament, you'll see in Romans 9.31, they were discussing our Lord's exodon, his exodus, his departure, simply translated, <coughs> his exodus, which he was, it goes on to say, about to accomplish in Jerusalem. What could be more comforting, brothers and sisters, than to be reminded that we've not only been liberated from the fiery furnace of the tyranny of sin. What could be more consoling in this veil of tears to be told that God wants to bring us into his very presence, which is what he did for the Hebrews of old at Sinai, but how much more so for us? Moreover, what could be more invigorating than to be told that in this in-between time, just like our forefathers, We have an ever-present God who is guiding us. Yea, even the Holy Spirit 
who is with us in our desert wanderings, even as God was with her forefathers in Egypt. But that's only part of the story. What could be more assuring than to be told uh, in this representation of the whole of our salvation, that this complex salvation includes an in-game plan, namely that God has wrought nothing short of ushering us into the land of Canaan, which is a picture of heaven itself. This cannot be doubted. That's your assurance. Not even the gates of hell can prevail upon it. Not even your own works or your lack of works can call it into doubt like so many revisionist views of justification want to set forth today. The sureness of this does not hang on our own good works in this time of betweenness. No, this entire complex of God's salvation was wrought by the perfect obedience of the captain of our faith, namely our common Lord Jesus Christ. He will do it. It is sure, it is yes, it is amen. There should be no lack of assurance with respect to introspectively looking at our own works or lack thereof. Although this is hinted at in the Song of the Sea, it is fully manifest in the canonical context of our 66 books of the inspired scriptures. Praise be to God. Come ye faithful, raise the strain of triumphant gladness. God has brought his Israel into joy from sadness. Loosed from Pharaoh's bitter yoke, Jacob's sons and daughters, led them with unmoistened foot through the Red Sea waters. Tis the spring of souls today. Christ hath burst his prison, and from three days sleep and death as a sun hath risen. All the winter of our sins, long and dark, is flying from his light to whom we give laud and praise undying. Copyright 2012, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.